Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, going solo today. No producer, no co-host, no engineer, no call screener. We will get to that in a second. 646-564-9909. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in and speak to us. If you want to listen to the show, you can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio if you want to listen to it live. You don't have to call in on the call-in line to listen to the show unless that's your only means, and then by all means, do so. Well, folks, by my lonesome. All kinds of buttons and lights flashing on the screen. So if I disconnect, you'll know why. No producer today. Let's see. What's going on with our producer? We do know that he is dealing with a family emergency. We don't have the details of the emergency, but I understand at this time it is not life-threatening. So we're thankful for that. Uh, He and his family will continue to be in our thoughts and prayers. We'll also send some positive energy their way, and hopefully he will be back with us uh, next week. Item number two, Baby Boy, which is the nickname I've given to my newest grandson, Josiah, which I think is the name of a king in the Old Testament. If not, I'll be certain to get a call from my mother wondering if I've wasted all of my Sunday school credits. But I digress. He's a month old now. This past, uh, yesterday, the 18th, yeah, one one month old. And for this month, he has been cocooned in the bosom of the women of the house, figuratively and literally when it comes to his mother. And uh, 
at six foot four, I think it's safe to say I'm the tallest person in the house. But I've been like the little kid looking in on the outside who can't see over the tall adults trying to get a look at this child. Every now and then when I'm in the back watching TV, they might bring him to me right before he's ready to be off for the night, etc. But that's okay. I'll bide my time. I'll wait until he's uh, no longer cocooned or suffocated. It's probably the more apt description. I have not heard the young man cry for at least 45 seconds straight. You might hear an eh, and then next thing you know, his nurses are all around him. I said, let the boy cry. Develop his lungs. This morning I heard him crying, but he sounded like a baby goat. He doesn't even know how to cry properly. I blame the women of the house. But hopefully they'll let him develop those lungs and get some good cries in at least 60 seconds. you got to let them go 60 seconds long to get those lungs developed, get the, you know, get the air in, carbon dioxide out, oxygen in. But they might be trying to prevent him from learning how to cry because uh, they don't want to deal with the dual noise from him and his brother. You can't stop nature. At some point, he's going to be two years old. The other one's going to be four. Multiple terrors running around. Then they'll grow out of it. And next thing you know, they'll be eight, nine, ten, eleven. You'll be hearkening and looking back to when they were this age and wishing they were that age again. So enjoy it while they're this age because the time flies by very fast. That's not only a message to myself, but to the other members of the household. Now, he does need to start growing a little bit because after one month, he still looks like he's an infant, you know, just came out. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but he's healthy, and that's all you can ask for. Uh, let's see. Do I have anything else in terms of news? I'm hoping the uh, Tom Brady thing will go to rest. I'm tired of hearing about it. Just cop. That's the best thing to do. Just cop and get it over with. Now we're going to get lawyers and whatnot involved. I don't think there's any 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 big deal, to be honest. I'm not saying that he purposely did anything or what have you, but you surely can't tell me he wasn't aware. Just cop. I didn't ask anyone to violate the rules, but I did say I like my footballs this way, and that's the end of it. Story's over. You get fined $25,000, but nope, didn't do that, and so here we are. That's my sports report for the day. I'm going to move right into our topic. It's going to take some time, this topic. The encounter group, the most dynamic group in the TC. Other residential programs, however they describe themselves, have groups that are similarly devised. What they call them, I don't know, um, but it goes by many names, I'm sure. But in Daytop, our common ground, it has been called the encounter group. It is the hardest group to participate in 
as a resident, it is the hardest group to learn how to facilitate as a staff person. And only experience on either side as a resident or a staff person will get you to the point of feeling comfortable in either participating and or learning to facilitate that group. But before I get into it, i got to tell you a story about my first experience facilitating that group. And the next day, and this was as a staff trainee up at Swan Lake, and the next day I got called up into Eddie Hill's office. And he asked me, he said, oh, Orville, do you know what the Gestalt theory is or Gestalt psychology? G-E-S-T-A-L-T. I said, no. He said, so what are you doing practicing it? I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, I was told yesterday, and remember, I'm a staff trainee, so I'm facilitating the group or practicing my facilitation of the group. I'm sitting in there with an uh, with a actual staff person, and they're auditing the group and then will offer me constructive critique or what have you afterwards and so on. But evidently... Word got back to the director, Eddie Hill, and the next morning he called me up and, and asked me what you know what I was doing, practicing this type of uh, practice in the group. And I had no idea, and this all this was was a monkey see, monkey do type thing. I saw another counselor do this, so I just mimicked that. And he went on to uh, tell me in words, which I can't repeat, but the, the gist of it was, to uh, don't practice anything you haven't been trained for, number one. And number two, he didn't say this, but it was a lesson that I learned, is be comfortable enough in your own skin to stay within the confines of what your knowledge base is. Until such time it's expanded, you learn, you're trained, you're educated in that, and then you can perform or practice that task appropriately. So... Back then, you get yelled at, smacked around a little bit, and then sent back out there to get get back at it again. No harm, no foul. But what is the Gestalt theory, you ask? Well, most people don't call it the Gestalt theory. At least back then, they didn't. It's called the uh, empty chair technique or chair work. And it's like you sit somebody in a chair, and either you may have another person in another chair across from them or an empty chair, and they're letting out their feelings towards this chair or this other person, and the other person or the empty chair is to represent a person in their life, it could be them or somebody else in their life, that has caused them great pain, great hurt, great emotion, and they're letting it out, pretending that that's the person in front of them. And so it's called Gestalt Psychology, um, and there's a lot more to it than that. I'm just giving you a very Reader's Digest version of it. And I saw a counselor do it. I have no idea if his counselor knew what they were doing. But again, it was monkey see, monkey do. And that's what I learned. Don't do monkey see, monkey do. Know what you're doing. And stay within the confines of what you do know. And you'll be better off. But that's the gestalt theory of... Uh, and so we see... we. We're seeing that often in encounter groups, and of course we learned that that was the most inappropriate place for that to occur because encounter group 
Normally that would occur in a therapy setting. An encounter group is not a therapy setting. Even though, even though some counselors, you know, have wittingly or unwittingly, knowingly or unknowingly, turned it into that. So what is encounter group? It is the safety valve of the residential environment. It is the pressure relief valve of the residential environment. Because when you are in a residential environment, you're in a community, you're in a family, and it can range. So where I was up in Swan Lake, it's 250 people. So imagine that. But I've experienced facilities where it's 30, 40, 50. So it makes no difference. But in any environment such as that, where the environment is self-contained, meaning that you're not leaving the environment, all your needs are met on the environment, uh, you're not going to get along with everyone in the environment, feelings are going to be created in the environment. And if you've heard, heard us talk throughout many shows, you know, one of the core aspects of successful recovery is learning about your feelings, learning how to identify them, then articulate them, uh, attach them to experiences, etc. So the encounter group was that forum that was devised into the therapeutic community or the residential environment where you can let it go. And that was the only place you can let it go. Now, in order to participate in the group as a client, as a resident, you had to, quote, unquote, pay some dues. What are those dues? You had to pay, you know, you had to pay for your ticket. And all that was asked for payment, and my hands are up in air quotes, was that you write on a piece of paper, which we called a slip, the name of the person that you wanted to encounter, so another family member, or it could be a staff, the reason, and you had to list a feeling. So all of this was practice, by the way. So identifying the person with which you had these feelings for, then naming the feeling that you wanted to speak to, and then put it in the box, the slip box. And again, other programs may have other names for these things. I'm just using our names. And encounter group would be held once or twice a week at the most. And if you dropped a slip, then you have earned the right to participate in the group. I should say earn the privilege, not earn the right, earn the privilege to participate. And if you didn't drop a slip, then you couldn't encounter anybody because that was your that was your, your ticket, your, your, your due payment by dropping a slip. And usually either elder residents or uh, staff would be assigned to corral all the slips find out who dropped the slip against who, and, you know, configure this all out into some kind of report document that would be given to the facilitator before the group. And so the facilitator knew who dropped slips on who, who had feelings for who, 
and had some measure of organization that they could use to then facilitate the group. Now, you can imagine when you're living with 30 other people, 50 other people, or 250 other people that, let's see, groups were held on Mondays and Thursdays. So, okay, so group ends Monday night. So you got Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoon until the next group. You think, oh, well, what can happen between, well, a lot of stuff can happen in the next two and a half days when you're living with the same people, you know, all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's no way to escape them. There's no way to escape. So you're forced to deal with people you get along with, people you don't get along with, people you like, people you dislike, people you can't stand, people you hate. You can't run from them. You can't hide from them. So the environment is very intense, and it's designed that way purposely to create feelings. Because, again, we don't have that much time. We don't have that much time, so it has to be very intense. It has to almost overwhelm you, but not to the breaking point. And we stress, so here are the tools. Here are the tools so you don't get over to the breaking point. You don't go over the breaking point. Here are the tools you can use. And so the encounter group was the pressure relief valve for the residential environment. And either that valve was released once a week or twice a week. More often than not, twice a week. In the larger facilities. Because you got more people, you got more stuff going on. Smaller facilities, you might be able to get away with it once a week. But sometimes a smaller a smaller house gets more feelings. Because think about it, 250 people, even though you can't hide, uh, you might... You know, if you got feelings for James, you know, you might you might go two days without really running into James. Even though you're in the same dining room, you can go sit all the all the way on the other end of the dining room. In a smaller house, smaller dining room, uh, there's not so much chance that you might be able to get away from James. So you might need more groups in a smaller house. So there are rules to the group. And then there are policies or protocols to the group. So what are the rules? Well, there are three rules. And they're geared around safety. Nothing is more paramount than safety in a residential setting. The environment has to always be safe. Because the safety of the environment is what creates in your mind, in my mind, as a client, feeling that it's okay for me to be me, talk about my stuff, and so on and so forth. Not just the physical safety, but the emotional safety and so on and so forth. So the first first, uh, rule of the group is don't leave your seat. Don't leave your seat. The second rule of the group is, you know, when a staff member says stop, hold it up, or what have you, you got to stop, hold up. Now, we understand that in the heat of the battle of the moment of the encounter group, it might take a few hold-ups for the, person, the people that are in the middle of the encounter to stop, But and we understand that, so we make allowances for that. And usually you get help from the other family members in, in stopping the encounter if there's a reason to stop it, and we'll touch on that. By the way, the whole, the, the whole point of 
point of this is to speak to, in the end, how does this translate to when I'm done with treatment, the, the whole encounter group thing and the whole encounter group process? Well, that's what we'll get to in the end. And then rule number three, listen very carefully to this one. You may say whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. This trips people up. Resident, client, and staff alike. Why is that? Because of policy number four. You will be held accountable for what you say. This means if you say vicious things that are outside the scope of your encounter, i.e. talking about family members, you know, like somebody's mother or father or something like that, or offensive name calling, etc., or making direct threats of physical harm to another client or staff, you'll be held to account. So let's go back. On number three, we say, you may say whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. Then we say, you will be held accountable for what you say. So it sounds like a dichotomy. Guess what? It is a dichotomy. Because even within that realm, we're teaching you something. Even in the encounter group, where we're saying, this is the only forum where you can say whatever you want, however you want to say it. But even within that, there are some guidelines. Even within that. If you make a direct threat, that are deemed to have serious intent behind them, they'll be dealt with after the group. And it can be severe consequences depending on the nature, the background, and the staff's interpretation of the threat. So we say think before you speak. That's also a dichotomy. You may sit how you want within reason and look where you want during an encounter. No, over my many years, this has gone. This is like one of those things that's gone like around in circles, from having to sit like you're in the army at attention and you know with eyes focused on the person giving you encounter group, to the extreme opposite. You know, like you're in a lounge chair at the beach and not giving it, making any eye contact, or you know all kind all kinds of nonsense. The bottom line is, as the facilitator, what we mean by that is. There has to be a basic level of respect for the group itself and all groups. However, we are allowed to sit in all groups, which is, you know, we sit with some level of respect to the group, to the facilitator, etc. The same applies. So just because if you're in an encounter group and you don't like the person who's encountering you, you're going to slouch way down fold your arms across your chest and all that. No, we're not going to allow that. We're going to say sit up. If you want to fold your arms, fine. But we're going to say sit up and sit properly. So you got to, we try and maintain the integrity of the group to a certain extent. So it says you may sit how you want within reason and look where you want during an encounter. We're not going to control where another, what a person does in terms of where their eyes are and so on and so forth. And I'll tell you why that's important. You don't have to sit silent during an encounter. 
But even that has a little guideline to it. Okay? We established two hot seats, obviously at opposite ends of the room. Why do we do that? Well, just in case someone wants to lunge for the other person, there's a long way for them to go to get there, and they can be intercepted. Simple enough, right? And then group starts and ends on time. Now, what is the purpose of the encounter group? Formally, what is the purpose? It's a forum where residents can vent their feelings, most of which are not appropriate to vent on the floor. And residents drop slips to be able to encounter another resident or staff. Now, what do we mean by most of which is not appropriate to vent on the floor? And what are we trying to accomplish by that? Well, we're teaching you to work on impulse control. Controlling how you act behind how you feel. So Johnny may pissed you, have pissed you off on Saturday. You can't react inappropriately towards Johnny on the floor. The floor mimics outer society. You just can't carry on any way that you please in society. There's a consequence for violating the rules of society, the laws of society. So we're mimicking that in the residential environment. So whatever Johnny has done within the confines of the residential environment to create feelings in you that have upset you, you have to learn to hold them. And if you want to speak to Johnny about that and encounter him in an encounter group, there are certain things you must do in order to earn that privilege. And that means filling out a slip, writing Johnny's name down, writing the name of the feeling that you want to speak to, putting it in the slip box. So you've earned your privilege now of speaking to Johnny in the encounter group. Now, one of the mistakes, and we're going to start and speak about the residents the clients, what their role is, and how they get tripped up in misunderstanding what their role is in encounter group. Let me start by saying the encounter group as a resident is for you, me, not the other person. It has nothing to do with the other person. Yes, you may believe, accurately or inaccurately, that they may be the source of the feelings that you're addressing, okay? But the purpose of the group is for you to express those feelings. The purpose of the group is not for you to have expectations on what the other person's response is going to be. And this is where people go wrong. This is a dire mistake people make. Excuse me. So I tell residents often, you do not go into encounter group with any expectation of what the other person is going to say. This way you don't set yourself up. I say, well, what if you go in and, you know, you 
you speak to your feelings and you talk about what upset you and you and you name what the feelings were and what you, know, you talk a little bit about what the incident was that that went down and when you're all finished saying what you have to say the other person across the end of the room says so what it's your feelings i don't care you're going to become more incensed you're going to get even more angry when the goal the objective should be when you leave encounter group that you have vented exercised out of you purged out of you those feelings that have built up throughout the week or throughout the the few days between since the last group if you walk in with the expectation of what kind of response that you're expecting from the other person you're going to be disappointed 99% of the time. You heard me say earlier, encounter group is not a therapy group. It's about the here and now. Meaning, what happened this week? What was the you know what what occurred that why you dropped this slip this week? We don't care in this group about what happened in your childhood or what happened with your parents. Don't think that we don't understand, we don't realize, and we don't know that some of what's going on in the group is transference, may be rooted in other issues that stem from those things. We're aware of that, but that's not the purpose of this group. Another mistake that's made, and this is made by both client and staff, but I'm just talking about clients right now, this is not an intellectual group. This is an emotional group. It's about feelings. And therefore, one of the reasons why we, we put in the rules is you may say whatever you want to say however you want to say it because when someone is speaking and dealing straight out from emotion, stuff comes out and it may be vile. It may be vicious. It may be mean. But that's the forum that we provide for it to come out because we don't allow that on the floor. We don't allow that in the outer society. Only in the confines of that group do we allow that. So we know that there may be vile things said. We know there may be mean things said, vicious things said. But it's only in that group. Now, I'm sure you can talk to anyone from any era that has experienced encounter group. There's always a a tendency to be concerned, and I'm not saying anyone shouldn't be. You should be, but there's always a tendency to be concerned about well, what is the impact and the effect if the group or the content of the group is so vile, so vicious, so mean, is there any worthiness to the group if it goes over the line? And, you know, over, historically, I've sat in on and been told about groups where staff have thought, well, this group went over the line because of the things that were said by certain people in the group. 
And to me, the only thing to me that steps over the line is if someone attempts to physically harm somebody. But words that may be spoken in the group are not over the line. That doesn't mean that if someone says something that's out of bounds from based on what we the guidelines that we've kind of set in place, that we don't deal with that. But the key is don't try and short-circuit it. Staff, I'm talking to staff. Don't try and short-circuit it from happening because it serves a better purpose to let it come out in that forum where it's a controlled forum where you can deal with it rather than have it be held in. And this is the way the person feels. And if it's allowed to come out, you get some insight to how this person thinks, how they feel, what's going on with them, and it gives you a lot of stuff to work with. Not in the group. I'm talking about outside the group. So you really get to know how a person ticks in the encounter group setting, especially when the real person comes out. You know, the first couple of weeks, three weeks, a month or so, you know, more often than not, it's not the real person until something really ticks them off in the environment. And then you'll get the real person and and you'll officially welcome into the program because the real them has finally made themselves known. So we don't have any expectations as a client. It's all about emotion, not intellect. It's not so much about what you think, it's about what you feel. And sometimes it can be very raw. If you're a staff person that has uh, is either experienced working in residential programs a few years, you're, you're used to this. But if you come from a different arena... And this, you know, and you're new to this, and you're you're you know you're dropped into a group to 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 learn, and you're training and how to facilitate it, and you and you experience it for the first time, you would wonder if whether or not we were crazy. I used to be concerned in the at the adolescent program because the adolescent program is right next door when we had it, right next door to a KFC, and. And then on the opposite side of us was a shopping, small shopping plaza. And so walking by on the street, you really couldn't tell what the place was because no one had any idea how far back it went, the property, the, you know, the campus behind this, the, the frontage of the street. And so, but the dining room was right by the, the sidewalk, the front sidewalk. And so that's where the encounter group was held, the front dining room. So I'm sure people... On a Thursday evening, walking by at 3.30 in the afternoon, would hear, you know, this screaming and yelling. And we wonder, what the hell's going on in there? But we never had any police calls show up. So, <laughs> But it can't be scripted. And that's another thing that, as staff, we have to be on guard for to make sure that it never, ever becomes a scripted group. How do you know, how can you tell when it's becoming scripted? By the response of the residents. 
And usually, usually, his, his history has shown that when that occurs, that is not something that the residents have, you know, brought on on their own or engaged on their own. That has been uh, introduced via, knowingly or unknowingly, via the way staff have facilitated the groups. So a certain style of facilitation has taken hold and kind of changed the nature of the group to a strictly emotional group where all kinds of responses are allowed and 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 allowed to come out, allowed to come forth, and then we deal with them afterwards versus setting limitations on specific limitations on what can be said, what cannot be said, etc., and then, therefore, the responses. When, so, if I'm encountering someone and telling them, you know, about an incident that we had, this is how I felt, and so on and so forth, and then their response back to me is almost a robotic response. That's not encounter group. I don't know what the name of that group is, but that's not encounter group. An encounter group, pardon the expression. But there's usually foaming at the mouth, spit flying, and snot flying. I know that sounds disgusting, but hey, when people are getting emotional about something and they're coming from their gut, it's rising up from their gut. And most of it is not for the person that they're encountering. It's, it's just coming from a primitive space. Okay, This is what happens. Part of the reason we kind of spread them apart from each other and we spread the group out so no one gets hit by any biological uh, warfare, so to speak. So the client's role is like we like to call it is to respect their feelings. Learn how to respect your feelings. And that's done by the practice of when you're in the environment and something upsets you, something creates a feeling in you, and we're not talking about positive feelings because obviously positive feelings don't require a pressure relief valve. We want positive feelings. We love positive feelings. We, we want to feel positive all the time, but that is not the reality, especially if you're living around other human beings. The reality is negative feelings are going to be created. And you have to learn how to deal, not only before you even deal with them, learn how to identify them, name them, attach them to the experience, then communicate them to the other party. And then the repeating, the repetition of practicing that every week, every month, over and over. Is a method to the madness. Why is there a method to the madness? Well, there's no encounter groups out in the real world. We know that, right? Yes. There's no encounter groups out there. I say this all the time. Well, why do we have encounter groups inside? Why do we have this forum? Call it whatever you want. We call it encounter group. Why do we have this forum where we can learn to respect our feelings, no matter what they are, vent them, no matter what they are, vent them in whatever fashion verbally we choose. Form doesn't exist out in the real world. So, I mean, what's the purpose of that? 
Excellent question. So let's put that question right off to the side. And now let's move to the staff role in the encounter group. Obviously to facilitate, to make sure, hopefully, if you know, time, manage the time, make sure everyone gets an opportunity that has dropped a slip, earn that privilege to respect their feelings. But how the staff person facilitates the group is very important, has a, has a significant impact on the effectiveness of the group. It is the hardest group to train a staff person on because you could sit in a, and, and this is even from my personal experience going through training, you could sit and train on this group for three months and get into the group to run it. And all that training goes out the window because what you may be presented with may not have anything to do with what you've been trained on. Why is that the case? Because you're dealing with human beings. So we train on a concept, on a theory, knowing full well that when the ball drops at the encounter group, you don't know what you're going to be faced with. You don't know what's going to come out of somebody's mouth. So you have a guide, a guideline, you have a concept, you have a theory on how the group should go, how you should facilitate it, but you, through experience, you must learn to be quick and light on your feet to respond to no matter what comes your way. And I think, historically, what throws people off from a facilitation side more often than anything else has been when the group gets vicious, vile, mean-spirited, and things of that nature. It's hard for some people to deal with, especially if you're, you, you know you've never experienced that before. And again, time, experience, because you, when you experience something like that a few times, then you kind of become, for lack of a better word, immune to it, and your response to it does not take on the normal human response, which would be to shut that down, which is a normal response, so it's understandable. But the appropriate response at a staff per, as a staff person facilitating the group is not to shut it down, but to let it go. Don't interrupt it. Let it come. Let it come out. I want it to come out. Why do I want it to come out? Why do I want to hear all that vileness and and viciousness and name-calling and what have you. Well, it's not that I want to hear it. I don't want to hear it because it's vile and vicious and it's name-calling. But for the purposes, for the sake of that individual client, it's obviously in them. It's obviously in them. So it has to come out. So imagine in your in your mind that a doctor is going in to do surgery on your thigh. He tore your thigh muscle, your quad. Terrible injury, by the way. And he gets in there, simple surgery, quote-unquote, no surgery is really simple, but, okay, he's repairing the quad muscle. He gets in there and sees a little something else off to the side. Hmm, what's that? He says, no, that's got to come out. That looks like a little... You know, tumor over there. I don't know if it's cancerous or benign or what, but I gotta get. I gotta take that out. 
You didn't know it was in there. You didn't feel anything. You just know you tore your quad. You were doing, you know, running track and you tore your quad. But you got to take that out. Same concept. You get into the encounter group and some stuff starts coming out of people. You know, you know, so and so has feeling for so and so. And, you know, you have an idea of what it's about just from being in the environment as a staff person. You know, that's another part of being a good facilitator is knowing the participants, knowing the clients in the community, in the family, a little bit about who they are, what they are, how they respond to things, and so on and so forth. That makes you a better facilitator, gives you an idea of what to expect, what not to expect. But something comes your way in the group that you don't expect, you have to be able to respond to it. And through experience and time, you'll you your your normal human reaction to cl- to clamp down on it and to eliminate it will be replaced by knowing that it's best that this comes out now in this forum rather than coming out somewhere else on the floor where it's inappropriate for it to come out. We don't want name-calling and vileness and meanness and all this nonsense going on outside of the group because then the whole family, the whole therapeutic community will be thrown into an uproar. And that's not what we want. That's why we provide the pressure relief valve of the encounter group. It lets some of the steam out, and then we can go back, do our thing, do our treatment, do our job functions and do whatever we're supposed to be doing in the environment. And then we get another pressure relief valve, you know, so it just keeps cycling through. Difficult to get staff initially, but I think over time, we've been reasonably successful in getting staff to adjust that, adapt to that natural instinct to clamp down and flip it around and understand I got to let it go, meaning no matter how disgusting it is and uncomfortable it is to hear what's coming out of this person's mouth. And especially, listen up now, especially when members of the opposite sex are encountering each other and the encounter gets vicious and there's certain names being used and, and, and whatnot, okay, that are inappropriate. Again, we have to control ourselves as facilitators no matter how much it offends us to hear that it being used and na- those kind of names and words being used we have to control ourselves and not intervene and stop the encounter let it come out because again this stuff coming out gives us information about the client and there may be something more to explore not in this group but in another group maybe or in another setting somewhere explore, hmm, what was behind that? Why did you refer to that person as that? And that has to do with sex, race, everything. All of that historically has come out in encounter group. And it has been so much better for the community and the family when it comes out. Or do you think it's better if it stays hidden? Or do you think it's better if it's if it comes out in the rooms? Or if it comes out on the floor or it comes out in the kitchen? 
or on the grounds. No, you want it to come out in a forum where it can be properly addressed, dealt with, and if need be, depending on what it is, and this is not something that it should should occur as as a point of normalcy for the encounter group, but if something serious occurs in terms of something that's said, you know, I might communicate to that person's counselor, look, this is something that was said in the encounter group. You might want to see what what's going on with this and why this was said. Is there something underneath this? But that shouldn't be a normal occurrence. Because the mantra usually is what happens in the encounter group stays in the encounter group. Because that's why we created that forum. That's the only place where we can let it fly like that. Now, let's get back to, okay, well, there's no encounter groups out in the real world. There's no slip dropping out in the real world. When I get upset at my wife, I can't drop a slip on her. Although I have. She doesn't respond to the group, though. Slip box just stays there. So how does this apply? How does this translate out into the real world environment? Well, in the real world, out in society, so I'm going to be your humble host is going to be society. So I'm going to speak on behalf of society. We don't care how you feel. I'll repeat that for you. Remember, I'm society speaking. We don't care how you feel. We only care how you act. Well, why do you why do you guys have us doing this encounter group and allow, allowing us to carry on this way if we're not going to be able to carry on this way once we move on into back into society? Well, how you start out an encounter group, expressing yourself, articulating your feelings, should not be how you end when it's time for you to transition out into society. There should be a maturation of how you articulate yourself. So when you're new up to three, four, five months, I have a different expectation. I have one expectation of what sh- how you should be conducting yourself in encounter group. It, it involves a number of things, i.e. first, Conquering the fear of dropping the slip and respecting your feelings. And then once that's conquered, then it's about learning to identify the feelings and learning to attach them to the experiences, learning to name them, etc. So all of these things have to first occur. And then once a person becomes comfortable with all of those things, then if they can drop the slip and they can just let their feelings fly. Okay, And, and I, as a facilitator, part of my role is helping them to get to, okay, if they're having difficulty, you know, naming what the feeling is, my job is to kind of help them with that because the whole the ultimate whole goal of this is learning how to respect your feelings and then getting to a point where you can respect your feelings in a respectful and dignified 
way. That is the ultimate goal by the time you're done in the residential setting. So the day before you leave, you shouldn't be respecting your feelings the same way the month you got here. There should be, we should be able to see a progression of growth and maturation in the way the person articulates themselves in encounter group. Now, some have taken to interpret that that means, well, what, so I can't get angry? Of course not. Of course you can get angry. Of course you can get upset. Your feelings are still going to get hurt. You're still going to experience pain. You're still going to experience rejection, resentment, and all, all those negative feelings. But what we want to see is a change in the manner in which you respect those feelings. And when we say respect, we talk, we mean how you, verbalizing them. We say respect your feelings. That means speak up. We want to see a change over time in how you do that. So instead of all the cursing and screaming and yelling, okay, there might still be yelling, but there might be less cursing. And then as time wears on, there might be less cursing, less yelling, and more talking. And actually more verbalizing of feelings and more attaching them to the experience. Because again, who is it for? It is not for the other person. It is for you. It is your practice so that when you get out into society and you go home to your family, you go home to your spouse, you go home to your loved ones, okay, where feelings are going to be created no different than the ones you just experienced in the treatment environment, you have spent the last few months practicing respecting your feelings. And now you can put that practice into play. And in your inter, I-N-T-E-R, and intra, I-N-T-R-A, personal relationships, you utilize what you have learned, what you have practiced, to do the same thing. Whether it's with your best friend, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with, you know, someone you're playing ball with, whether it's with someone in the supermarket who's cut in front of you on the line, whether it's someone who cut you off on the highway, no, there's not going to be no encounter groups. There's not going to be any slips dropped on these people. And remember when I said that how we, the, the, the forum, the encounter group forum, this space that we give you happens once or twice a week. And said so the reason for that is we want you to work on your impulse control. You got to hold it. So you got to wait three days before you can speak on it. It starts the process of disciplining yourself. Now, for some people, that's harder than others, and it's funny. The ones where it's hard for them to do that, and they and they just react right away. So they have to work on really, you know, self-control. And, and delaying that gratification of just reacting right then and there. But then you have the flip side. The ones where it's easy, and then they don't say anything in group. So you get both extremes. And both extremes have to work on something. It might not be the same thing, but they have to work on something. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break before I close out this topic. And when I come back, we're going to finish up with how the encounter group, the dynamic of it, to me, ultimately, is going to help people succeed in their recovery, how that ties in. So we'll be right back. OCG can change your life in 15 minutes or less. Sounds familiar? Well, no, we don't sell car insurance, but we do change lives. If you, a family member or a friend, is struggling with substance abuse or addiction, give us a call. Toll free 866-325-6466. That's 866-325-6466. We will arrange a confidential assessment that will take 15 minutes or less. You can also visit our website, ocgworks.org, click on the service tab and select the online confidential screening link. OCG, where hope grows. Welcome back, Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, 646-564-9909. We're talking about the encounter group. We're getting ready to close this topic out and talk about, finish up about how it translates to the outside world. Remember when we said in numerous shows, we've touched on this through questions that have come in or what have you, how the number one cause of relapse is tied to a person's inability to deal with their inter- or interpersonal relationships. Well, when a person learns to excel at their participation in the encounter group and and gets to fully understand what the purpose of the group is for them and how to properly utilize it, they can take that same experience and move it over to their inter- or intrapersonal relationships because the same process applies when feelings are encountered, when feelings arise, when feelings come into play, how you go about respecting them. Now, if you respect them like you're a one-month member, okay, I can tell you how that's going to end up. But if you respect them as a member who has, a client who has matured and progressed appropriately in the way that they articulate their feelings, that's going to have a different result. Now, the reason why that's important is because, and we say this all the time, nowhere else 
are you going to encounter feelings that are extremely primitive than when it comes to relationships? And not just intimate relationships, but relationships with family members, close friends, people who you care about, people who you love. Because those are the only individuals that bring out those primitive feelings. And you must be able to respond to those feelings appropriately. In the encounter group process, you don't know it at the time. We certainly don't tell you at the time. But I'm hoping that counselors will advise you on the back end, especially if they've seen that progression, that maturation, that that's going to help you in that inter and interpersonal relationship area. How you now respect your feelings in that dignified manner, the respectful way that you do that, you must do the same thing once you get outside into outer society. And those who are still struggling are going to have the same result when they're struggling inside treatment. Society is not going to allow you to respect your feelings in the way that you do as a one-month member. They're just not going to allow it. So you're not going to allow you're not going to be allowed to have road rage. You're not going to be allowed to carry on in the supermarket because someone cut in front of you on, on, on the line. You're not going to be allowed to do those things. You're going to have to learn to control what you do behind how you feel. There's a method to the madness. So that's the encounter group. One of the things I'll say to the staff is a reminder, don't interrupt the encounters. Let them go. So and this is to all providers who do this type of group. Let the encounters grow. go. Don't be afraid of what's being said. Okay, Words, although they do hurt, they've never killed anybody, and people can recover from that. And I'll always tell residents, look, the only thing I can't promise you is that your feelings aren't going to get hurt in here. Your feelings are going to get hurt. You will experience anger, upset, resentment, frustration, etc. And we're going to make sure that you experience it because the environment is set up to make sure that those things that you experience those feelings, that you can practice dealing with them constructively different from how you may have dealt with them in the past. Today, different from in years years ago, more people have difficulty, clients, with the encounter group process. Is it because people are more vile? I don't think so. People are more vicious? I don't think so. You should have heard some of the groups in the 90s. I don't know what it is, to be honest. But what I do know is that in the best interest of you, the client, it's important that the group keeps its core purpose, 
Otherwise, we should change it and do something different. That's always been my position. If we're not going to do it for the reason it's intended, which is to provide the pressure relief, et cetera, as we spoke about, then we'll change it and do something different. So that's the re- that's the the encounter group at its core. All right, we're going to take our first music break, and then we come back on the other side. We're going to do our recovery support time. Um, I got some X-Files questions. I got a couple of excellent questions that I want to get in. I see we got a couple of calls on the line. I see you. Hold on. There's no call screener, so when I'm going to call on you, I'm going to ask for your name and your hometown, and then you can shoot your question. So we'll be back in about four minutes. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be.
on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. Welcome back to Roach on Recovery, 646-565-9909. We're now in our recovery support time. Name and hometown, please. My name is Ryan, and I am from OCG in East Palo Alto. How can we help you, Ryan? Um, I was wondering how, I know um, the recovery is supposed to you know, be for us, but I was wondering also how we help our um, family members deal with the fact that our addictions and our and or our uh, PTSD is, is not their fault when they're struggling with, with thinking it is. Give me an example. Um, well, <clears throat> just like, uh, you know, when certain things happen to you and, you know, um, we all have our own addictions for our own reasons, but, um, you know, sometimes things happen and, and we have our addictions because of that. And it has nothing to do with our family, but when they look at the things that happen, like, you know, when we go to prison and come to programs and stuff and they, they blame their self for it. You know, what did I do? Um, what did I do wrong? You know, when right. I, stuff like that. Well, if you're speaking about parents, um, that's a natural thought process for them to have. Mm-hmm. And usually uh, either on their own or with help from others, they come around to, uh, especially if they if it isn't, they have nothing to do with it, the decisions that were made. You know, they come around to realizing and understanding that and then with reinforcement from you. Okay. You know, that's important that you reinforce that also. Now, it's totally yeah. different if there's things that occurred that have contributed to, you know, decisions that you have made that others play a role in. That's a different story. And yeah. it's a different conversation. But if that's not the case, then you reinforcing that and letting them know that, you know, it's it's decisions that I've made. You know, you provided a decent home, decent upbringing, and I just... You know, I just made some bad choices. Okay. And they have to, in time, you know, get there. All right. Okay? All right. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Bye-bye.
sometimes um, parents are usually the ones that go through that the most um, when they, when their children go through addiction and and end up in places where they never imagined. Um, they start looking at, looking in inward. What did I do wrong? What could I have done different, done better? Sometimes the answer is there's nothing that you could have done different or better um, if you've done everything that you were supposed to do as as a parent, reasonably supposed to do, could have done under whatever the circumstances that you know they were raised under. Um, but like I said to him, if there were circumstances where, you know, it, that wasn't the case, like if my parents weren't at, you know, were addicts and so on and so forth, then, you know, there is a role. There is a, a role that they've played. How much and, and what it is, it's hard to determine. Um, but if that's not the case, I have to reinforce that in them and say, you know, this, there, there's nothing, it wasn't anything that you've done. It's choices I've made. And and they eventually then have to come around on their own or with help from others. So, all right, let's go to our next caller. Name and hometown, please. Hello? James. In San Francisco. All right, welcome. How can we help you? Hey. Well, just real simple. How does uh, I've heard of the methadone? How does that work? You know, you know, both in the body and then what does the what do I have to do? Are you on methadone or something you're considering? No, I just heard about it. Oh, you just heard about it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, invented in 1937 by the Germans. Oh, really? Yes. So is it you, the same as heroin or Well, no. Methadone is in a synthetic form, a synthetic opioid, whereas heroin comes from the poppy plant. Um first came out in World War Two and uh-huh. then uh taken over by uh and by the way, the original name wasn't methadone. It was called dolophine. And okay. originally, since methadone was invented, created, whatever word you want to use in, in Germany, people thought that that had some relation to Adolf Hitler, the name dolophine. It actually, it's a Latin word. Dolor stands for pain. French word thin. Put them together and you got dolophine. Oh, and even okay. now, the word... D-O-L, dole, is like a pain measurement. So if you go to the doctor, I don't even know if they're using it in the United States, to be honest. Oh, what's your pain measurement? How many doles? Well, now they just say, what scale of 1 to 10? What are you, a 1 or a 10? They used to say <laughs> doles. Anyway, it's a history oh, okay. lesson. But anyway, Eli Lilly, heard of them? Yeah. Yeah, they took it over. Uh, and they're the ones who then decided to do the studies along with some academics, and uh, it became a what was then known as a substitute for heroin addiction. So they were substituting the synthetic opiate for heroin, and the thinking was, the argument was, and it was a successful argument, was that it eliminated the lifestyle that went along with the heroin use, you know, so whatever people had to do to get heroin, the negative lifestyle, 
if they were on methadone, they didn't have to engage in that. So their their overall well-being improved as a result. That can't be argued. That's statistically been proven, empirically studied, no doubt about it. Okay. Uh, the only problem is, and this is just my own personal opinion, okay, is that you know methadone is very hard to get off of, also, and is arguably more detrimental to the body than heroin. But that's an argument to be had. I'm just saying. All right. So you're leaving one addiction and just as bad or worse. Could be. It's, but that does but not eliminate your life lifestyle. Yeah, you yeah. Say. Does not eliminate what the studies have proven. There's no argument in there. I mean, if if you're if you're on the street living that life, chasing heroin, versus you know a person going on methadone and regaining some semblance of normal life, health improving, so on and so forth. Yes, even though you're using a substitute, and yes, even though the substitute may have its own things with it. They look at has your life improved, has your health improved overall, things of that nature. So there you have it. Now that makes sense. Uh, that, that's that's helpful. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. It's always going to be a big debate with the methadone, but. You can't argue with the uh, the studies. It then just comes down to personal opinion. All right. Your name and hometown, please. Jesus Vega, San Bruno, California. Welcome. How can we help you? Uh, yes, I'd like to ask a question about recovery. Sure. Okay. Um, I quit uh, using... Uh, crystal meth uh, prior to coming to OCG and mm-hmm. um, I want to know what at what point is one uh, a person most likely or more vulnerable to relapse in the uh, recovery process how long did you use um, well I used for 33 years on and off but uh, the crystal method it was uh, the last three years every day uh, when you Randomly taking the the dealer was out of it, maybe you know a day off in a month. Okay. In the last three years, maybe once a month I didn't use. Okay. When you said thirty-three years, you meant that you were just using drugs, period, for thirty-three years, but meth the mm-hmm. last three years. Uh, yeah, and crystal meth the last three years every day. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, um, primarily, what were you using prior to that? I uh, was using uh, cocaine, sniffing it. Okay. Okay. Well, guess what? Mm, I have no clue. You're lucky. How is that? You're very well because you you don't have long term use of methamphetamine. Okay. So you haven't done a lot of damage to your brain. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. So and to answer your question, though, what, when am I the most vulnerable to relapse in my recovery process? 
you're vulnerable at any time where your commitment to your recovery is not where it needs to be. Okay. Someone can walk in the door and say, I'm done with this lifestyle, and it is never an issue for the rest of their life. And somebody else can walk in the door and say, you know, I'm here, I'm not sure yet, I'm hoping I'm done, and it's a struggle for them to get to that point. And while they're working their way to that point, they're in a state of vulnerability. Oh, okay. So it really comes down to it comes down to what that person, where they are at in terms of their commitment to their recovery and living a new life. Okay, so the answer I have it within myself. It lies within you. Oh, okay. I guess that's what I was wondering. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to our next caller. Name and hometown, please. Russell W. from Foster City, California. Hi, welcome. How can we help you? Yes, I was just kind of curious to know, what is the hardest narcotic to recover from? Hmm. The hardest one to recover from, I would say. Well, hmm. Boy, that's a that's a horse race. That's that's the 1978 Belmont Stakes right there. But if you uh, if you put a water gun to my head, I, I would I would have to say uh, cocaine. That's just my personal opinion. Would that just be uh, powdered cocaine, or would that be rock cocaine? Any type, or in any just form. Any, any any form, or yeah. No matter how you. The, re- uh, the reason the reason I say cocaine is because more often than not, someone who's using coke, abusing coke, they don't think they have a problem until they move on to something else, like methamphetamine or crack. That that brings you down very quickly, whereas someone who's abusing cocaine, they can stay in that life for a long time. That makes sense. Whereas, you know, meth, that can bring you down pretty fast. Crack, that can bring you down pretty fast. You want to know the easiest drug to recover from? Yes. Heroin. Really? Yes. Now that's surprising. Seventy-five percent of the work is licking the physical addiction. That's why I've always said people who were addicted to heroin and licked the physical addiction and then and then went back. I always called them the stupidest people on the planet because you know you got to pay the piper, right? It's it's not easy to lick the physical, you know, go through the withdrawals, right? So Correct. they finally do it, they lick it, they're home free on the physical side. Now I just got to deal with the psychological aspects of why I use drugs and all that stuff. Well, that's the easy part when it comes to a heroin addiction. Or maybe it's not easy, I don't know. But to me, 
once they lick that physical thing, all they got to deal with is themselves. But that physical thing is a monster. That's what stops people from, you know, getting off. That makes sense. That's my opinion. A lot of things into light for me. Yeah. Excellent. And just just for argument's sake, I put alcohol all the way by itself in another category. Great. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, All right. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay. Let's go to another caller. Name and hometown, please. Joaquin Vigil from South San Francisco. How can we help you, sir? Welcome. Uh, well, I was just wondering, um, uh, like, can you can you be hypnotized into being sober? I have no idea. You know who can no. best answer that? You know who can best answer that question? No. Smokers who have tried it. People who smoke cigarettes who've tried being hypnotized to stop smoking. But I've never heard of it being used to get off of uh, illicit drugs. Oh. So, so, who, I don't so who would I, like, uh, should I call, like, a program like that, that does that? You can try that, yes. I've never, right. heard, I've never heard of that, but I can't say it's impossible because I don't know. Yeah, because I mean they 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 do a lot of things with hypnotizing. You know, I was just wondering if that was that would be one of them. This sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. All right, sir. Thanks. All right. Bye bye. Bye. All right. I'm gonna hit the. Uh... X-Files for a minute. Since I don't have my producer, we can't do our normal uh, X-Files clip. But I had a couple of good questions I wanted to get out there. So this is from... uh, (laughs) I'm going to actually read what he wrote as his hometown, which will... Once I read the question, you'll understand it. This is from Romeo. I don't know if that's his real name or not. Hometown is Heartbreak, USA. My partner just relapsed. How can I help her and keep myself safe? Now, if you've been listening to us for a while, you you know what my answer is going to be to that one. It's like a person who's out in the ocean. You're on, you're on the the life raft, so you're the person that's up, you know, in recovery on the life raft, and this person goes overboard, and you want to save them without bringing your, dragging yourself out of the life raft, and both of you end up drowning. That's the image you should have in your mind. And history is littered with love cause of not one but two people being dragged down and so we counsel we advise we beg we plead no one can help the other person other than that person themselves depending on where you are 
in your point of your recovery process, you can do one of two things. Number one, you can be a role model by staying on your path. Number two, if you are advanced in your recovery process and you are certain that you cannot get drawn into that web and jeopardize yourself, you can offer words of encouragement, words of advice, positive reinforcement. But ultimately, you can't put someone in a headlock and make them do it. They have to be ready and willing to do it. And oftentimes, the, the sad reality is that they're not. And it's painful. It hurts. And most of all, the feeling that gets overlooked and not articulated and not talked about is that it's rejecting. Because that person's behavior... So your girlfriend or your boyfriend, their behavior is basically saying, I don't want to be with you because this is more important to me. That's what it's actually saying, really saying. It's hard to accept that. It's hard to hear that. It's hard to believe that. But that's the reality. And that's why that, that, that gets overlooked. The, 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 the act of what they're doing is actually rejecting you. And so the feeling of feeling rejected, even though the person may, there's something you know, else I feel, I just can't identify it, and more often than not, that's what it is. But it's so painful to realize that that's what it is, we just throw it off to the side. We don't even dig for it. And it's painful. That's what this person is saying. You're supposed to be, you know, I'm supposed to be in love with you. You're supposed to be my girl, my boy, whatever, you know, my man. And, you know, you're choosing this instead of me. That's painful. But we don't want to see two people drown. And oftentimes when the one party is not ready and doesn't have enough sufficient recovery under their belt, to make sure that they don't get dragged into it, dragged into the water, two people go down. And that's terrible to see. And it happens a lot over love. Relationships, relationships. All right, back to the phones. Name and hometown, please. Rojas, Redwood City. How can I help you? Uh, yeah, I had a real quick question. Thank you for answering my phone call. Uh, Welcome. My name is Rojas. I'm from Redwood City. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, I kind of think about this question sometimes. And, and and I know it's a simple one, but how long does it take to recover from drug addiction? It's something that I kind of like, you know, like am I eventually going to be able to say, you know, I'm cured and... That pretty much that's what's kind of like in in my head, you know what I'm saying? Like knowing that if eventually I'm gonna be cured, and that's pretty much the question that I had. What do you? What is your definition of cured? Uh, to being able to to being able to well, the definition of cure would be not to be damaged from 
whatever it is that's damaging. That would be my definition of being okay. cured. Okay. Ultimately, you you no one else decides that, but but you. How long it's going to take? Every single person is different. So I, as an, uh, uh, another person, I can't sit there and say, oh, it's going to take you this amount of time or this amount of time. Only you can determine that through what, you know, based on where, you know, where you're at internally, what you think about your recovery process, and, you know, what goals you've set as far as that's concerned. Only you can determine that. But, but I would advise you on one thing. Don't look at the clock. Don't look at the calendar. Just do it. Yeah, I mean, definitely sounds like something. I, I, I mean, I, I've thought about that idea too. You know, just trying to figure out where I'm at in my addiction, and 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 you know, trying to work the steps and and trying to understand them. And sometimes I do think, uh, you know, that maybe in the future I'm I'm not gonna need them. You know, and that's that's kind of something I guess. I shouldn't say, but at the same time, I would like to say, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it definitely makes sense what you're uh, what you're telling me right now. Just do it. Don't look at the calendar. Right okay. on. Thank you so much. All right. All right. You're very welcome. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. Name and hometown, please. Anthony from Hayward, California. Hi, how can we help you? So my question for you is, okay, do you think that having a homosexual in a group of predominantly heterosexuals in a group has more of a negative influence or a positive influence on the group group's recovery? A group's recovery? Uh, you know, in a residential treatment program. It doesn't make a difference. Does it make a difference? No. person's sexual orientation has no impact on whether or not a, a, first of all, a group of people don't get recovery simultaneously. Oh, I understand that. They participate together in sharing, talking about things, but every, everybody's at a different place, and their sexual orientation is irrelevant. I understand where you're coming with, from with that. Do you think anyone would ever be uncomfortable or, you know, it would stunt their their progression or anything, maybe? That do sense? I think people, do I think someone would be uncomfortable if someone of a different or sexual orientation was in the group, in mm-hmm. a group? Of mm-hmm. course people would be uncomfortable. Okay. People would be comfortable, people would be uncomfortable. But the thing is, is whether or not there's enough trust and enough um, safety in the environment that we can talk about that. Definitely. All right. You know, we all cool, come. Cool, we cool. all come. We, we all come in. We walk in, right? We all come in with our prejudices, our stereotypes, and so on and so forth. And no place else have I experienced learning more about different people than in the treatment setting. I'm starting to learn that too. 
and having those stereotypes and prejudices cast away because everything that you know I thought was was wrong or proven to be wrong. Yeah. I see what That's you're saying. That's the beauty of the treatment setting. You get everything is represented. And so whatever may make you uncomfortable or whatever you might be ignorant to or don't understand presents itself and you have an opportunity in the treatment setting to, if you take it, that's the key, if you take it, you have an opportunity to learn, understand, and maybe have a different viewpoint. That makes complete sense. Okay. Thanks for answering my question. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, man. Have a good night. All right. You too. All right. You know I'm working without my uh, co-host today. I'm going to try and uh, I'm going to take a quick commercial break and then come back and and take some more calls. My mouse is giving me a problem, by the way, so I'll just make that public. Um, but let me go and see if this is working, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. But for now I find 
to Roadshow Recovery, 646-564-9909. Recovery support time. Let's go right back to the phones. Name and hometown, please. Mike from San Mateo. Hey, Mike. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, how many times does using uh, crack and cocaine and meth before you get addicted to it? Well, Mike, they used to say back in the 80s, all it took was one time and you were addicted. Huh. Wow. I didn't know that. Have you used Have you used any of those? Yes, I have. Uh, crack. Okay. Did you become addicted to it? I did for about two years. Okay. It's a very... Uh, you know, one of the reasons why they warn people off of it is because it's a very intense high, and what 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 people who are looking to medicate their feelings they want to replicate that high, and so they continue to chase it. Yeah, before you're you right know about it, that. Before you know it, it takes over your life. That's true. Which can sometimes be a blessing in disguise. <laughs> I heard that. Okay. Yeah. Think about that one. <laughs> I'll do that. All right, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. All right. We still got a few minutes. Let me go to X Files. Here's an interesting question it's from Zach. Why do I feel like continuing rehab and programs over and over is re- is regressing? my recovery, and should I just go you know, go out and try life out? He brings up a very interesting point, or question, I should say. Is there a point in time where going through treatment repeatedly starts to, like, no longer serve a purpose? Well, my answer to that, and a little bit to answer his question... Obviously, if a person continues to go through treatment episodes, it means that they're still struggling to get on this recovery highway. And what happens usually if you are in your third, fourth, fifth time at trying, and they're not separated by years, so to speak, you you get it's how much information can you absorb that's different that's going to grab you in a way to cause you to make a different choice in your life and live your life in a different way. Because ultimately, you can only be told something but so many different ways before it's just left in your hands. Do you want it or you don't want it? Now, another way of looking at his question, which is we experience more often is in terms of length of treatment and a person, you know, when they get to a certain length of time and treatment and they start to regress because it's really time for them to move on to whatever the next phase of their life is, okay? And sometimes people, you know, do things to purposely trip themselves up, you know, because they they might be afraid to move on to the next phase and what have you. Um, but if you stay too long, yes, there's a possibility you could regress. In terms of multiple episodes, that speaks to a different problem of the person, the client, not grasping what they need to grasp 
or not being ready, not being willing, not being able, one of the three, not being you know, ready for recovery. And if they're not ready, nothing anyone tells you is going to help until you're ready. All right. Still got a few minutes here, so let's uh, take another phone call. Name and hometown, please. Christopher Berrigan, hometown San Carlos, California. How can we help you, sir? Okay, I'm in a drug rehabilitation program, and I have anger problems when it comes to, you know what I mean, just to everything. And I'm, I'm wondering what's the best way to deal with that and everybody else's, you know what I mean, attitudes and, and you know, mishaps and stuff when, you know what I mean, they come at you the wrong way and stuff. Like, what's the best way to deal with it and, like, you know what I mean, be able to break away and kind of, you know what I mean, just brush it off without, you know what I mean, catching a feeling, like, majorly over it, you know what I mean, reacting in the wrong way when it comes to going to look for that problem or getting back at that person, you know what I mean? Okay, let's go in order real quick. Number one, stop saying you have an anger problem because anger is a normal human emotion. Everybody gets angry, so it's not a problem when you get angry. It's only a problem what you do when you get angry. Okay, thank you. Okay, so let's focus on when I get angry, what is, how do I behave? What do I do? And if it's, if I make bad choices, that's what I need to focus on changing. I don't need to stop trying to get angry because it's normal to get angry. If you didn't get angry, you wouldn't be human. Yeah. So it's, when I get angry, do I make bad decisions that get me into trouble? Yeah. Okay, so let's focus on that. And then the second thing, in terms of dealing with things that come up in the environment that, you know, that create anger and upset you, okay, those are all opportunities. This is a different way of looking at it. All opportunities to look to to practice, okay, making good decisions while I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. So the treatment environment, the treatment setting is set up that way purposely to give you yes. numerous opportunities to practice, 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 practice. So it's yeah. not going to go away. What has to what has to change is the way you respond to it. Exactly. So it's giving you opportunities to to practice changing that response. I just gave you one of the secrets, so you owe me a dollar ninety five. So when it comes to like the the reactions, how do you know when you know what I mean when One's worth the, argue, the argument and when it's worth to just, you know what I mean, just brush it gotta, off and put it behind my, you. My, my best advice to you is to, if you're in the treatment setting and you got an encounter group as an option, that was our, folk, our topic today, encounter group, drop a slip. Yeah. Drop a slip and practice respecting your feelings and learning how to articulate them and verbalize them. Yeah. But I do have change. an encounter group. Yeah, you must change what you do when you get angry, and dropping a slip is all part of that process to change your behavior. Okay? Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right, sir. Thank you. Have a good Bye-bye. day. You too.
right, I only got a couple of seconds left, it looks like. Normally my producer would be cutting me off. So thank everybody that uh, called in today and everyone that listened and everyone that has been listening and supporting the show. Uh, let's make sure we get a shout-out out to uh, Chris Morales and his family. Hope everything is going well, and uh, we'll get a report from him on how things are going with the family, and uh, we expect, hopefully, we'll have him back here uh, at the producer and the co-host desk uh, next Tuesday. Until then, have a good week and a good weekend, everybody, and we'll see you back here live next Tuesday on Roach on uh, Recovery.
our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you ready?